0: Only perfect people can be perfect leaders that can be used by a perfect God. Let me say that again. Only perfect people can be perfect leaders that can be used by a perfect God. And now that I have all your unperfect people's unperfect attention, (laughs) I will say, of course, that isn't true, okay? Everybody was like, where is he going this morning, man? That's not true, obviously, right? The beauty of the Bible and the gospel is that there is a perfect one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, who takes imperfect human beings and he accomplishes his purposes for his glory, all while working in them and then through them. And the book of Judges may be one of the most uh, enigmatic books in the entire Bible because of how it works and it's work, how God is working through such profoundly flawed people that do some pretty profoundly flawed things. That's why this is one of those books in the Bible that often when you're reading it with your kids when they're young, you're jumping all over the place because you're skipping stuff or you're giving the dad um, version of it, right? You're, you're, you're interpreting it in such a way because there's some really, really painful things in this book. And there's some really, really um, powerful pictures of people not listening and following God's design. Yet God is going to be at work. And he's going to be working in these people and and transforming some of them, but he's going to be working through them to accomplish his purposes. And the point of that is that it should give us hope that God can work through people like us too, because we're flawed and we stumble and struggle and wrestle, and yet God can work in us and through us. I just got to share this story with you because it's going to choke me up just a little bit, because I was kind of having one of those weeks where Um, I was trying to help somebody who had been incarcerated. Some of you know I used to work in a prison, and I got asked to testify at a a hearing and this man's possible release, and I just didn't think that it went well. I felt really discouraged afterwards. It was by Zoom, and I thought, I don't don't think I really helped him very much, and you you just have to put that in God's hands, but I was pretty discouraged by that. A day later, I get a Facebook message from another man who I worked with who had been incarcerated, who's now been out for over 20 months, and he's doing great, following the Lord. He showed me a picture of him being baptized. He's serving in a church. And it was just like, I'm just sitting there going, on the one hand, I'm feeling so discouraged because I don't think I helped this guy. On the other hand, another guy says, hey, when I was in that program in the prison, it changed my life. And this is what God's doing. He's on the board of a ministry now. And I'm sitting there going okay, this is how God does things. God works through imperfect people like me, working through an imperfect guy like this who spent a lot of his life in jail. Now he's out doing ministry, and yet over here, I'm praying that God's going to work with, through this guy's life, even if he doesn't get released from his incarceration. And I just couldn't help but sit there and think, that gives me hope. That God is working in the lives of people, and and in my life, and and he's working in your life, and he's working through people's lives that you think maybe could never be redeemed. But God's at work, and he's doing these things. But he's going to use some, like I said, flawed people to accomplish some of it. And one of those, I I put it in my notes, we're going to look at one of the lesser flawed judges in the book of Judges. Because there's a lot of judges, and some of them are really, really flawed. Like sacrificing their own kids, kind of flawed. Gideon, who we're going to look at today, is one of the less of the flawed. But he's not perfect, and we're going to see where he stumbles and falls as well. So let's jump back a little bit to Judges. If you do have your Bibles or if you're going to look it up on your phone, we're going to look at Judges chapter 2, and then we're going to spend most of our time in 6, 7, and 8. But in Judges chapter 2, this is what happens. Joshua dies at the age of 110. Um, The people had served the Lord while Joshua was, was alive, and they were being faithful to the covenant, and they followed his leadership. But then in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, it says this. Another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Another generation rises up, and for some reason, they hadn't done a good job, and this is something that happens, and parents, I just want to challenge you and encourage you with your responsibility of passing these things down to the next generation. But for some reason, this generation grew up, and they did not know the work of the Lord, and they did not know what the Lord had done in Israel. And in fact, in, verse, in Judges chapter two verse 11, it says, "And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals." They started serving the gods of the people that they were going in to conquer, the people that were living around them. They had gods, and they started serving those gods and worshiping those gods. And so what happens in the book of Judges is this cycle of sin. And and it's just a sad cycle that we see happen over and over. And and it's not just in the book of Judges. We're going to see it later in the Old Testament as well. But what happens is the people sin. They follow after other gods. They don't keep the covenant. God gets angry, and he's going to bring justice and judgment on them. He uses other people to oppress them. that That gets their attention, that they need God's help. They cry out to God. God raises up a judge who comes and delivers them. There's peace for a while while the judge is alive, and then the cycle starts all over again. The good news for you and I is that sometimes we might feel like this cycle happens in our lives. Don't you sometimes? Something's going on in your life and you and all of a sudden things are good and you just get comfortable and you find yourself falling back into old patterns of thought or old patterns of behavior. You find yourself in sin. And then God might bring some sort of discipline on your life and then you say, Lord, I need your help. And you cry out to him and he delivers you and things get peaceful again and you're just kind of doing your thing and then all of a sudden you find yourself right back in that same cycle. It's a cycle that human beings find themselves in. In the book of Judges, we see it over and over again. But the Lord will raise up a leader to deliver them and they were called judges. And these were these people that God raises up and God uses them, despite their flaws and all of their issues, God uses them to deliver his people and bring times of peace and bring them out of oppression. And the one we're going to look at today is the Judge Gideon. So let's start looking at his story in Judges chapter 6. This is what it says, Judges 6:12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, just get that picture. Remember, I like to tell you to use your imagination because these are real people, real stories, real times in history. These things really happen. So here's this man, and if we look back just a couple of verses earlier, he's hiding because the enemies, what they were doing was they were waiting until harvest time, and then when the people of Israel would harvest, they would come down and steal their harvest. So he's kind of hiding. He's kind of doing his work in hiding and. Then he gets called a mighty man of valor. It kind of makes you smile because he's in hiding when he gets called that. But an angel comes to him. Put yourself in his shoes. An angel shows up and calls you a mighty man of valor and says, The Lord is with you. But Gideon responds in a way that so many other characters in the Bible have responded. Kind of watch for Moses in his response, okay? Because we saw this with Moses, too. The first thing Gideon does is, why are these be- bad things happening to us? He's not saying, whoa, the Lord has appeared, and I'm a mighty man of valor now. He's saying, why are these things happening to us? And I wanted to just take a side note this morning to remind you that sometimes that's what happens for you and I too. And it's really hard. It's really hard when we don't get an answer. When, when we ask, why is this happening? The interesting thing here is that Gideon is asking that question and he will not get an answer. And it's really hard when you and I do that same thing. We cry out and say, God, why is this happening? And sometimes we don't get an answer. Or when we've been through something and we want to know why and we want to know the good that's going to come from it, right? If you've been through something hard, you want to know that something really good's going to come out of it and that there's going to be some sort of blessing in your life and some sort of way you're going to use that to help other people and the reality is sometimes we go through hard things and we don't know why and sometimes they're just hard things this is not really popular but something I've come to see that sometimes there are things that happen in our lives that we don't get the answer for and we just end up having to live with them but we have to trust God as we live with them We don't always get to know how this is going to help somebody or how this is going to change my character. And we sometimes just have to live with that. God's not giving me an answer. And Gideon doesn't get an answer. I just find it fascinating that he's asking, why are all these bad things happening to Israel? And God doesn't tell him. He was just told by God that God was going to use him to deliver his people. Now, how, how would you feel about that if you were the one and something happened and you said to, to, to the angel, Why is this happening? And the angel says, I'm going to use you to help other people. You're like, That's not what I asked. <laughs> I was asking him why this happened. He said, I don't have an answer for you, but I'm going to use you. I'm going to work through you to deliver. So, like Moses, he comes up with all kinds of excuses. If you look through that passage a little bit, he's going to come up for excuses about why God couldn't use him. And I just find that fascinating. Have you ever been there? When we hear Moses, when we hear Gideon, we can say, yeah, I've probably been there before. You feel God prompting you to something, ah, that can't be you, God, because I could never do that. But God is calling him to do something, and he's making up all kinds of excuses. And he's calling him to do it through an angel. It's not like it was just like an impression. <laughs> he's got an angel standing right there. And so then through a miracle, God convinces him to listen to obey. God does this, this little miracle, and Gideon's going, okay, all right, I see a miracle, so I'm going to obey you, and I'm going to do what you asked me to do. And he was told to tear down the idols in his town and replace them with altars to the Lord, but he's still a human being, and he's still a little scared about that because he thinks the town people are going to respond in a certain way. So he says to the Lord, all right, I'll obey you, after the Lord showed him a miracle. And so he goes out, but he's going to do it at night. I'm not going to do it in the daytime when everybody can see me do it. I'm going to go do it at night. So he still has this twinge of fear. He goes and does it at night. And then all of a sudden the townspeople the next day still are like, what happened here? Who did this? And why is this happening? And so he has to go through this whole dialogue with the townspeople about the fact that what they were doing was wrong because he tore down the idols and they shouldn't have been worshiping idols. But at that same time now, the Midianites and the Malachites are coming together to attack Israel. So he's dealing with the people of his town because he's doing what the Lord told him to do, to tear down, to, to tear down the idols. And then he's got to deal with these two, uh, two armies, that, two people groups that are going to come and attack them. And in Judges chapter 6, this is what happens. The people say, hey, we want you to be our leader. We want you to help deliver us from these people that are coming. The Spirit of the Lord is on you. And the people of Israel rallied around him. And then this is what Gideon says. Okay, so get that picture. The Spirit of the Lord, it says, clothed him. And he saw a miracle. And he tore down the idols. And so he's doing the right thing. But all of a sudden, when it's time to step it up a little bit, and he's supposed to deal with the Midianites and the Malachites, this is what Judges 6.36 said. Then Gideon said to God, even right there it kind of makes me stop, right? (laughs) You said to God, if. That's a key word right there. God had already told him what to do. God had clothed him with his spirit. God had told him that he was going to use him to deliver them from the Midianites and the Amalekites. And this is what he says. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. If that's true, I'd like you to give me another sign. And, and, and I find this really troubling. If, when he says the word if, he's saying, God has already told him what to do, but he's saying, God, you got to prove it to me. you got to give me another sign. God had already shown him a sign. And he sent him an angel. And then he tells him to do this great thing. And he says, well, if, if you're going to save Israel by my hand, this is what I'd like you to do. Here's another really important little glimpse of the new testament that we can get from this passage God has already shown him a sign right and yet he didn't believe God I've already done this sign I told you he did a little sign where he brought a fire down on some food I didn't tell you that whole story but that's in judges 6 and he brings this fire down and does this little miracle Gideon says okay I'll follow you but now when he's got a bigger thing to do he says prove it again I want to remind you that the need for a sign in order to be sure about something is not an act of faith. Needing a sign is actually a lack of faith. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 4. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except for the sign of Jonah. So they left him and departed. Jesus actually calls it evil to ask for a sign. Why? Why? Because he wants his people to be people of faith, not of proof. And here's what's really interesting, you guys. He had, in Jesus' case, he had done all these miracles, and now they say, give us another sign. And Jesus looks at him and says, that's not going to help, because you don't have faith. If you need proof for everything, then there's no need for faith. And he said, even if I do these signs, you still aren't believing. See, that's the, that's the danger of saying, I need a sign. Because even if I see the sign, that won't help me with my unbelief. Only faith will do that. In fact, here's what's really interesting about what Jesus says. Evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. He says, I'll give, I'll give you one more sign, the sign of Jonah. And just like Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days... Jesus, after his death, was in the belly of the earth for three days, rises from the dead, and guess what? People still didn't believe. The greatest sign you could possibly imagine. And do you remember the story? What do the religious leaders do? The guards come to the religious leaders and say, listen, he's gone. The tomb was rolled away, and he's gone. The stone was rolled away, and he's not there anymore. And they said, don't tell anybody. We'll cover it up. They should have been going, uh-oh, he rose from the dead, like he said. The greatest miracle. They asked for a sign, he gives them the greatest sign, and they still don't believe. You see, what is so challenging sometimes for us, and I don't know if you run into this, but I do, what's so challenging sometimes is I want proof after proof after proof, and Jesus says, I want you to be a person of faith. That's hard for some of us, because I'm a fact guy, I've got to have all the data points. Sometimes Jesus is saying, I want you to be a person of faith. So let's go back to our story. Here he is. He's asking for another sign now. He's going to ask, if, I, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, I've got another request, another sign I want you to show me. And here's the beautiful part, you guys. What I just said about we need to be people of faith, and we shouldn't be always seeking to have the proof of, uh, of God showing us stuff, like through miracles and things like that. God, in his great mercy, he's going to do another miracle. <laughs> I just love this. In his mercy, he's going to look at Gideon and go, come on, Gideon, I just did all this stuff. I put my spirit on you. I'll give you another sign, just like Jesus did. I'll give you one more. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. We'll see if it helps. We'll see if it'll help your faith. But in our story, God in his mercy, he says to Gideon, all right, I'll do one more sign. And then Gideon actually asks for two. So what he does is he takes a fleece and he puts the fleece on the ground and he says, okay, Lord, if you really want me to go lead Israel into this battle, would you make the fleece wet and the ground dry? So in the morning he gets up, the ground all the way around the fleece is dry, um, but the fleece itself is wet, so wet that he could wring it out. Good sign, right? Sign. He asked for when He got it, uh, Lord. Because signs never will do the work that only faith can do. He says, Lord, how about one more? So this time, Lord, what I'm going to do is I'm going to now put yourself in his shoes. This is a real person, real story. This really happened. Lord, I need one more. I'm going to put the fleece back out again tonight, and this time I want the ground to be wet around the fleece and the fleece to be dry. Now, sometimes when you were a kid and you heard these stories, this actually was kind of put as a positive story. This is not a positive story. This is a guy who's saying, God, I'm not trusting you, so after you already showed me one miracle, I need another miracle, and guess what now? Another miracle. And he's kind of making God do silly stuff. God's patience is amazing here because he's being patient with with, with Gideon. And so he does it. And so the next morning, the ground was wet, but the fleece was dry. So Gideon now has been growing in his confidence. Unfortunately, it took all of this to do it instead of just the word of God telling him to go. And he begins to assemble an army. In Judges chapter 7 then, he gets this army together. But God wants to to prove to Gideon and to his people that he doesn't really need them to accomplish his purposes. So he amasses this big army, and God says, it's too big. (laughs) Now, how many times would you ever hear that in a battle? It's too big. So he goes through this whole process, and some of you know the story. I won't get into the details, but he goes through this whole process of cutting the army down to 300 so now you're way down to 300. He had thousands of men that are ready to go to battle, and now he's down to 300. And God, through miraculous means, will use these 300 men to rout their enemies and to deliver the people of Israel. Another miracle. A miracle that he didn't even ask for. But God is saying, listen, you guys struggle with faith. You struggle with believing that I am going to guide you and protect you and lead you. I'm going to show you you can't do it through your might. And so I'm going to cut it down to 300, and then you're going to go have a victory. So chapter 8, we jump into chapter 8 then. The Lord empowers Gideon and his army, and they have a great victory. Um, Some of his countrymen in verses 1 through 3, they're upset that he didn't invite them into the battle. And he said, I didn't need you because God was going with us. Um, Then he finds some of his other countrymen, and they didn't provide for them. So when they're routing this army, and they're defeating them it's not just like a battle that's stationary after they defeat them the army flees and they decide to chase them because they want to finish this battle so here's these 300 men chasing these other soldiers and these other armies that are much bigger than them and they're in, in number wise and they're chasing them and actually at one point they're hungry and they're thirsty and they ask some of their countrymen uh, th- they say hey can you give us some food and something to drink because we're winning this battle, but we've got to finish it. And they showed that they didn't trust in the Lord because they said, no, we're not going to give you any food or drink. We're not going to give you food or drink because what they were saying is, you might lose this battle yet, and then we're going to have to deal with these people, and so the Midianites and the Amalekites might come back and take revenge on us for helping you. So they step back, and they won't even help them. Again, think of this, real people and real history. These guys are winning this battle, and now they're hungry and thirsty, And the people around him said, no, we're not helping. And Gideon warns them that after he wins his battle, he's going to punish them for their negligence. He's going to come back, and for their unwillingness to help, they're going to pay a price for that. Remember, this is the battle that God himself called Gideon to carry out. And so when God called him to carry that out, and the rest of the people didn't support and didn't help, that showed their response to God. And so there is a reason to look upon these people and think that there should be some justice and that there should be some things that Gideon does when the battle is won. But God called him to this battle. God called him to carry it out. And the rest of the people, when he needed some help, they said no. What's interesting about Gideon, though, he seems to be transforming in real time, as all this is going on, from being a hesitant leader who lacks confidence to an assured and bold and confident leader. Remember, he was hiding in the wine press while he was doing his work, afraid of the Midianites and the Malachites coming down and stealing all the grain and all the stuff that he had done. He goes in the night and tears down the, the idols. Now, he looks to be a pretty confident leader, and he's looking at people and says, you're going to get the consequences of your actions. I'm coming back after I win this great battle, and there's going to be some consequences here. Eventually the armies are defeated and judgment falls on their enemies and those who did not support Gideon. But it also seems that Gideon might be moving a little bit past what his role should be. And he begins to be harsh in his response to those who didn't support him. They actually take him and, and, and whip them and do all kinds of stuff to them that probably was maybe more than what a godly leader should have done in order to bring about um, kind of the the discipline that they were supposed to. God didn't tell him to do the things that he did when he brought this discipline on him. But because of the great victory now, it appears that Gideon is going to be at this place where he's in a good spot with the Lord, and he's in a good spot that will start to turn, and like all the other judges, will go into a negative direction. But because of the great victory, the people said, we want you to rule over us. So he has this great victory. He seems to respond a little harsh to those who didn't support him. He kills the kings of the people that he conquered, and it doesn't seem like the Lord told him to do that. So it seems like maybe he's starting to get to this place of thinking more highly of himself than he ought to. But the people think highly of him, and they want him to be their ruler and leader. And this is Exodus 8.23, and this is where it seems to be that Gideon is in a good place. He says, I won't rule over you, and my son won't rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you. And he's at this place where he recognizes this was the Lord that went before him. This was the Lord that brought this great battle. And the Lord worked through him and used him. And he's at this place of going, wow, look what God did. And he used a little simple guy like me, and I was able to lead my people, and we had this great victory. But what always happens if we're not walking in the Spirit and not being careful we start falling back into old patterns or we start thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And the next thing that he does is he makes something called an ephod out of the spoils of war and people began to worship it. So he says, God's going to rule. I'm not going to be your king. My son's not going to be your king. That seems like a good thing. But then he goes and takes the spoils of war and makes this ephod, which was something the priests wore. And he didn't set it up as an idol, but he made it and he shouldn't have. And people began to worship it, and people began to say, well, this is what the high priest should wear, but the high priest is located somewhere else. Now we have our own kind of thing to worship here. And instead of stopping that, Gideon allows that to happen. And then the next thing Gideon does is he starts to act like a king. I'm not going to be your king, but I'm going to act like a king. And he begins to do all the things that a king did. And unfortunately, Gideon ends up actually falling into some of the same sinful traps that we see King Solomon fall into. If you know the story of King Solomon, time of peace in the land, but he himself fell into moral decay. And that seems to be what happens with Gideon. In Judges chapter 8, the land had rest, verses 28, it says, the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. And through this flawed judge, God uses him and shows mercy and they have 40 years of rest. Now the rest of the story is that Gideon will have wives and concubines and will do the same thing Solomon did. He has 70 sons from all these different women. Um, he's acting like he's a king. The humility is gone and the humble nature of how he said he was going to just be a servant of the Lord and be used by the Lord and the Lord would rule over Israel he begins to act like a king. And like I said, if you want to read the rest of the story in Exodus 8, you'll see his downfall. Wives, multiple wives, concubines, 70 sons, that means who knows how many daughters, that he had lots and lots of children. And yet, the amazing thing is that God uses this flawed judge to deliver his people and to bring about rest for 40 years, just like Solomon, There's about 40 years of rest, during the time of Solomon, even with all of his moral decay and struggle. So, what do we do with all this? What do we do with the book of Judges? I'm going to tell you something. As preachers, we don't preach through Judges a whole lot. (laughs) It's a hard book. But when you think about our series, when you think about the thread, there's a lot that we can take from this, and this is where I want to go as we conclude this morning. How does this connect to the thread of the Bible? First is, God is the one who delivers. Throughout the whole Old Testament, we're going to see this theme over and over, how God is the one who delivers. That's our trust as we move into the New Testament, that God is going to be the one who delivers. So we see in Judges that it's God who delivers. And he uses imperfect and even sinful Judges to bring about this deliverance of his people. And in future books in the Old Testament, he's going to use kings and prophets and priests, and I think we're going to put the the, Cycle slide back up there because this is going to happen some more. This is coming again, even when we're using kings and priests and prophets. The structure isn't going to solve the problem of the human heart. And this deadly cycle is going to continue. But here's the beautiful thing God is going to be faithful to the promises that He made. The faithful promise that He made to Abraham that His descendants would become a people too numerous to count, God's going to be faithful to that even though all of this is happening. God's going to keep his promise that even through all the ugly mess of the time of Judges, that they were going to be a people that would bless the whole world, that he was going to bless the world through his people Israel. Those two promises and those two covenants are not stopping even in the midst of the mess of Judges. But here's the good news, and here's the thread. But in the New Testament, a new covenant is put in place a covenant that is put in place by the perfect one and the one true judge, the one true priest, the one true prophet, the one true king. A judge, a priest, a prophet, and a king that will never fail like the judges failed in the book of Judges. He will never turn away from the will of God. He will walk in perfect obedience holiness, and righteousness. You see, we were supposed to see in the book of Judges these men who would fail that God would still use, but what would God do through the one perfect one, the one who would never fail, the one who would follow his will perfectly? And the beauty is that he'll deliver his people once and completely through faith in what he accomplished by his shed blood, death, and resurrection from the dead. Let me say that again. He will deliver his people once and completely through faith in what he accomplished by his shed blood, by his death, by his resurrection from the dead. You see, our great Deliverer has arrived, and his name is Jesus. The great Judge has arrived. His name is Jesus. The great Prophet, the great Priest, the great King. All these men and judges that failed... God kept going with his promise. God kept doing what he said he would do, even though they failed time after time after time. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And there it is again, by faith. Our Deliverer has arrived, and by faith in him, we can once and for all and completely be right with God, delivered from our sin, and be in a place where we have the righteousness of Jesus. I love it how Liz Mann stated it. There is only one mighty man of valor, and he became dust like us, but he never failed. Instead, he perfectly accomplished all that the Father asked him to do on our behalf. Because of him, we're saved from our enemies. And because of him, we're being transformed into mighty men and women of valor. Take comfort that God is at work, no matter your level of faith. I invite you today, no matter how great or small your faith, by faith, believe in Jesus, the great deliverer of his people. Don't ask for all kinds of proof. Ask for faith. Ask him to help you to have faith because there is a great Deliverer who came. And by faith, you and I can know him and have a relationship with him and be delivered from all that wants to drag us away from him. I invite you this morning to consider that as we come to the time that we're going to celebrate communion and to think about even Gideon's story, and maybe some of you know the other stories in the book of Judges or some of them, and think of those imperfect Judges and think that a perfect one came. A perfect one came to deliver us. And sometimes when we look back in a book like Judges, sometimes you might even see yourself at certain places. Sometimes I see myself in that cycle. And the beautiful news of all of this is that there is one who came to deliver us from that and to give us his spirit. And the book of Judges was just supposed to remind us what it looks like when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. What we were supposed to see is what a mess it is when God is not the one who's ruling over his people. And I invite you to let him rule over you.